Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Nick Howdle and Sophie Amstel from Wiltshire Music Connect, which is a music education hub. If you don't know about music education hubs or you're listening from outside of England or the UK, I'll post some information about hubs in the show notes. But basically, they're groups of organisations such as local authorities, schools, voluntary and other organisations who receive government funding in England to create joined up music education provision in the local area. And they fulfil a number of roles which are part of the government's national plan for music education. So why I thought you'd be interested to hear about this hub is that it works in quite a different way from other hubs. It doesn't deliver any music education services itself and instead it focuses on connecting, upskilling and empowering the music education community in the area. And then the other reason I thought it would be interesting is that it has been focusing on really understanding and involving its stakeholders and developing targeted communications as a result of what it finds out. So welcome, Nick and Sophie. It's really great to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, before I go on ask, uh, to ask you about Wiltshire Music Connect, can I ask you a little bit about you personally and how you ended up where you are today and why it's so important to you? I've been working for Wiltshire Music Connect for um, just coming up for two years, but my background is arts education in quite a broad sense. So I've worked for festivals and dance agencies and schools, um, theatres. It's probably worth saying that I wouldn't describe myself as a musician. Um, I can play the piano very badly, but I work strategically to develop music education in Wiltshire and I am surrounded by musicians. Um, in terms of why I do this kind of work I can probably explain it really quickly and easily with a little anecdote from the beginning of my career. Um, I was working at Brighton Damon Festival with an amazing woman called Pippa Smith who was my boss at the time. She was the director of learning. She'd given me one of my first jobs in the sector and on that particular day we were standing in the auditorium of one of the theatres with probably around 300 rowdy school children sitting in the auditorium waiting for the show to start. And Pippa grabbed my arm and she said to me, just have a look at the children. One of those children is about to have their life changed forever by what they're going to see on this stage. The problem is we don't know which one it is. And that's really stuck with me because we know that music can have life-changing impact on children and young people um, for a whole number of reasons. But if we don't make sure that all children have access to really great music education, then those life-changing moments won't happen. So that kind of spurs me on every day in my work, really. Um, whatever I'm doing in the office, I, I know that I'm, I'm hopefully contributing towards those life-changing moments. Oh, that's really lovely. Thank you, Sophie. And what about you, Nick? Well, similarly, I'm spurred on by many of the things that Sophie is, and uh, I think because I believe that music is, um, is excellent for developing young minds. The jobs that I did prior to this job were running Wiltshire Music Service for um, a couple of years, and before that, working in London with um, uh, an organisation called Sound Connections and a national funder called Youth Music. 
And prior to that, I'd spent a lot of time working as a musician in participatory music making, but also in arts and regeneration schemes in South Yorkshire. So I think what I bring to this equation and a lot of my thinking about it has been shaped by a lot of that previous experience, including working on um, a thing called the Music Manifesto towards the end of uh, the new Labour government and some things that followed that which led to the formation of the National Plan for Music Education and Music Education Hubs. Fantastic. So that's a really good mix of kind of community development, regeneration, um, informal music and formal music. Absolutely. And, and as Sophie's alluded to earlier, I think that, you know, we see a lot of synergy between the work that we do here and community development work. Our particular community is music education and a range of stakeholders that sit under that banner. But it is essentially community development work. Oh, that sort of says a lot about the way you work, doesn't it, too? And so personally, why is it so important to you? You're a musician, aren't you? I am, uh, and I've, uh, I would say that through my processes of being a musician and learning about music myself is that I've gained an awful lot of wider life skills, experiences and uh, skills and confidence, I think. And, and I, I guess I see myself as one example of how an individual can benefit from, from being engaged in something which is of value and has purpose and allows for expression. Thank you. Okay, so getting into the questions, can you tell me about the model for the music education hub in Wiltshire? Because it is quite different from most other music education hubs. Well, our model is the way it is because we had to um, we had to restructure everything in Wiltshire um, for four or so years ago when the when it became apparent that there was no longer going to be enough money coming from, from the local authority to continue the traditional and really well established high quality county music service and what we did was take the opportunity to really try and come up with a new model which would be future facing and as future proof as possible for the period that lay ahead which as most people certainly in the in the British public funded sector are aware is particularly uncertain and riddled with cuts and changes and restructures so essentially we have a very small team at the centre which which concentrates on strategy that has a stakeholder board which effectively governs it um, and the decision-making powers for the hub have been delegated to that board by the local authority even though the employees of the hub and there are five of us um, are actually local authority employees we have, rather than having um, a team of tutors who work on our behalf, we have an associate scheme. Associates are quality assured individuals and organisations who deliver music in a range of different settings, contexts, styles, genres, and give us a really rich palette and evolving palette, I would say as well, because new associates are already joining. And we now have over 150 different organisations and people engaged in that associate scheme across the county. That's more, well more than twice uh, the amount of people who used to work for the music service. And what we do is we concentrate the use of the resources that we have on commissioning, funding or subsidising particular areas of activity. One example being um, in relation to the Music Education Hub's core role of progression. We subsidise instrumental tuition in schools for um, young people from families who cannot afford it for whatever reason or are facing particular kinds of disadvantage. But in the majority of transactions that are taking place between our associates 
and young people in schools where no money is required, there is no money and it's a direct transaction between them. And that means that nobody can ever cut the funding to that. So we're trying to concentrate funding in particular ways where it's most needed. In terms of things like ensembles, which is another part of the, the roles for a music education hub, we subsidise the delivery of um, ensemble opportunities through a number of different organisations and increasingly we concentrate our funding on making those accessible to people who otherwise couldn't afford them. And we embrace some of the more traditional Western classical music ensemble opportunities in the county, including subsidy that we provide towards the equivalent of a county youth orchestra. But we also provide subsidy to people who are working with bands uh, and pop and rock acts and other things like that as well. And we've been able to expand the range of things that we've supported as we've done that. We have a singing strategy and we have particular initiatives and use of subsidy that goes towards singing related activities. Um, and um, in relation to our school music education plan work, we have uh, a team of cluster coordinators who are contracted to work um, in 13 notional geographical clusters of Wiltshire to develop relationships with schools and providers within them. So we do everything by trying to get money back out of the door to other people who are doing those things and have a vested interest in making those things work in the county in the longer term. Thank you for that. That's really, really clear. And so I've got a question from Twitter actually about associates, but just before I ask that, just wanted to be clear about what are the benefits for private music tutors in engaging with you and kind of what process do you go through to um, make to quality assure them? Well, essentially, um, in a way, all of, all of our associates are private tutors or the equivalent thereof. Many of them are, are organisations. Some people have um, organise themselves into a cooperative. We have an associate scheme, people apply to be associates and in order to do that they have to pass certain thresholds of quality assurance that relate to first and foremost to um, safeguarding and an awareness of, of these kinds of things to being insured and um, a commitment to CPD and uh, an appropriate mix if you like of skills, experience and in some cases qualifications that give them the credentials to be able to operate safely and effectively as a music educator. Beyond that, what we're encouraging all of our consumers of their, of their work, if you like, schools, parents and families and young people, is to recognise that they have a choice about who they engage with and the basis on which they engage with them, and increasingly to ask them the questions about why a particular tutor is most suitable to a particular cohort of pupils or an individual. So what we've been able to do is embrace a much wider range of practice, of styles, of genres, and as we've said earlier, over 150 different individuals and organisations by opening the doors in that way. In terms of the, the benefits to them, I think it's worth saying that it's completely free to apply to be an associate and assuming that they meet the threshold in terms of safeguarding and, and quality that Nick's talked about, they then become part of this wider community they have opportunities to network with each other and learn from each other's practice they get a range of free cpd they get a free listing on our database so that any parent or school in wiltshire can um, search on our database to find the kind of music educator that they're looking for so it's a really great way of um, them advertising what they do so I, th I think there are a lot of benefits for them they can also access our subsidy schemes in terms of instrumental tuition. They can access the instrument hire scheme for their pupils and they get first crack at um, uh, engaging with CPD 
activities and conferences and things like that. And increasingly, we find that the content of our CPD and conferences is actually delivered by our associates themselves, sharing back with the community. We also have associate representation on our stakeholder board. Wiltshire Music Connect is a really appropriate name for you, isn't it? Because a lot of your work is just about connecting up those people and bringing them into Absolutely. the wider community. Yeah. So the question that came in from, from Twitter and, and LinkedIn is from Tim Mason, um, who's a guitar teacher from Norfolk. And I think you might have already answered this question, but I'll ask his question and just see if there's anything else you want to add. He says, there seems to be no collaboration between music services and private instrumental teachers in the UK, meaning that private tuition is still the most feasible route for students wishing to achieve high grades in an instrument. Do you talk to private tutors in your area? Well, I think the simple answer is yes, because we're, we're not a music service, so there's no distinction in our model between music service tutors and other private tutors. In, in effect, everyone in Wiltshire is a private tutor, and we have an open-door policy to all of them if they want to join our associate network. Um, so absolutely anyone can apply to be an associate, and, and that means that we have a really great level of ongoing dialogue with our private tutors in this area. So we correspond with all of our associates um, through e-bulletins and gatherings about things. We involve associates in some of our grant assessment panels or other discussions about particular things um, so that they're involved, if you like, in shaping aspects of their world of work. And effectively, we see our role as a music education hub as being about supporting a wider economy in the county, which has a value of somewhere between two and three million pounds a year. What we want to do is see high quality practitioners being able to earn a good living and provide good services within the county in the long term. And our CPD work and some of the other things that we do in terms of making connectivity between schools and tutors is all about developing that. So would you say that you're kind of creating the conditions so that if you weren't to be around, if there wasn't to be hub funding from 2020 onwards, that the sector would still survive? We, we certainly consider that. I don't think it would be as simple as saying that if we weren't here in two years, everything would tick along quite nicely without us because, of course, there is always jigging along and persuading and encouraging to do in these kind of roles. And what's interesting about our model, and we don't assume that our model is automatically better than anyone else's, is that we concentrate on developmental work and we concentrate on, if you like, opening the next set of doors down the corridor and looking at, at what lies beyond the horizon and things like that and trying to relay it back to the people who are actually doing the work on the ground on a daily basis. It's a strategic role and um, we do think about how things might happen if we were to have to scale down our operation. Certainly some of these connections that have been made through clusters or associates and schools and could continue if we were no longer able to put some of the same levels of resources to them as we do now. You mentioned clusters there, and I know that's an important part of your model. Can you tell me a little bit more about that, how those work? Yeah, so we, we have, um, as Nick said, we've got 13 music clusters across the county, and each cluster has a coordinator who works on a very part-time basis for us. The coordinator plans and delivers cluster meetings, and they arrange CPD and supports each cluster in deciding on how to spend their own budget on something that will benefit all of the schools and, and thus the children and young people in that area. The cluster coordinators also carry out annual school visits so that we can provide some one-to-one -one support to schools as they develop music education in their particular context. Um, I think 
we, we sort of pride ourselves on the fact that the clusters allow us to operate very much on a kind of grassroots up model where the teachers in those schools themselves are deciding how things develop and grow rather than us trying to tell them what they ought to be doing. And certainly the clusters that are working most successfully are the ones where there are really committed teachers who can see the benefits of collaborating across schools, but also where um, other music education providers are engaged in the clusters, so peripatetic teachers and other music organisations, venues and that kind of thing. So they become a really a rich source of information about what's going on on the ground and are really able to direct where things go. Again, that's very much a community development model, isn't it? And so a question that Ali Daubney asked, she's a researcher and trainer in music education, you're probably aware of, of her. She said, what criteria do you apply when choosing what and who to fund and particularly in situations mm -hmm. where there are multiple options? And is, is that where kind of clusters and people being empowered to support you to make decisions comes in? Yeah, ab absolutely. It's, it's a really good question. So thanks for sending it in, Ali. And of course, there are a million ways that music education can happen and we, we can't just throw our limited resources at anything and everything. So, so it is important to target resources where they're going to make the most difference. Recently, we've been developing a commissioning model where we use our music clusters, as you say, to identify gaps in provision or particular needs and priorities. And then we make commissions available to um, our associates who might want to fill those gaps or to respond creatively to a particular need that's been identified. So to give you an example, earlier this year, we identified through our music clusters and a variety of other sources of information that there was a need for music careers information for young people so we asked our associate organizations to put forward proposals for music industry careers events and we assessed all of those proposals and chose to fund the ones that best met that need in an innovative and creative way and the result is that over the coming months there's going to be a whole range of music careers events taking place in Wiltshire and they're all going to be in different locations and they're all going to focus on slightly different things because they're being run by different associate providers in different areas who have that really local knowledge and expertise needed to make the event fit that context. So it's kind of a little bit around the houses here, but in answer to Ali's question, I think there's never a one size fits all approach. We're always looking to find quite unique solutions to address a specific need. And so we always create different specific criteria for every commission that we put out there. And that plays to the strengths of our local community. We do also have a development fund and that, that kind of works the other way. So that's so that our local providers can innovate and try something new and come to us with an idea if they themselves have identified a gap that, that might not fit our commissioning model. I think it's really important that, you know, how this is done evolves over time and is responsive to changes in the wider ecology of the county and other things that might happen as that, as well as things that we can begin to see strategically over the horizon. I think that one of the constant challenges faced by those providing music education in schools and communities and within schools themselves, people who work for schools, is that they're constantly up against a number of ongoing daily challenges and practicalities about, I think, uh, about, about what they do. A big part of our job is to look over the horizon on their behalf and share some of the things that we can see heading towards them and to anticipate what some of the solutions to these challenges 
and indeed opportunities might be. Uh, and that I think is a really, really important thing. Um, and it doesn't seem to happen enough, I think, in a lot of a lot of settings. And what we want to do is is introduce people to the future, if you like, and introduce them to the opportunities and the challenges that the future might bring so that they're ready for it by the time it arrives. That's so important for a strategic organisation, as you sort of call yourselves, and also a, an organisation that's all about community development, because far too often you see people being very tactical and reactive. So that's really, really good to hear that. And also, I guess, in, term, in terms of Annie's question and the criteria you apply when choosing who and what to fund, you've also got a real clear set of outcomes and values. And, you know, you make that clear on your website. So I guess the kind of headline criteria would be do with your outcomes that you've outlined absolutely and we we have outcomes we felt it was important to have outcomes for our music education hub that that weren't just the core core and extension roles for music education hubs because from the outset we felt that getting the right solutions for wiltshire would be ultimately what was the right music education hub for wiltshire and what would keep the arts council and government happy in terms of the headlines that they need to watch and monitor so there is absolutely alignment between our outcomes and those roles but we you know often think about them differently and they are things that are particular to our organization so we have outcomes that focus on participation on progression on events and performances on workforce development but also on advocacy connectivity knowledge information stakeholder engagement which is crucial to our model and specifically inclusion which we made the decision not to sort of embed or bury if you like within the other outcomes but to to make sure that it stood there on its own and we monitor how we do in terms of those things against those outcomes as well as reporting to the arts council and to government that's brilliant because i know it's hard for all hubs to have clear sort of more outputs that they have to report to arts council as a result of the funding and often those don't feel very strategic they feel more about outputs than outcomes. We want to get into sort of evaluation language and, it, and you've taken that the ball by the horns and said, right, these are the outcomes that are right for our area. So any, anything else to add about the criteria you apply when, when choosing how to distribute your funding? No, I don't think so particularly. You know, we've got stuff that concentrates on need, on economic need and, and, and social need. And we have things that concentrate on filling identified gaps. And we have things that concentrate on things that might happen in the future. I think it's incredibly important that within Music Education Hub's work, it itself has time and a degree of capacity to experiment with models and ideas and approaches, which might in five or 10 years time be the new norm. And that's, that's really, really important. And that must not be crushed or squeezed out by a sort of a, a politically driven need to hit what often there's some quite stayed possibly old-fashioned indicators about the numbers of this or the numbers of that because if you're not in the right place in the future then you're not serving the community that you're there to do and equally we feel it's really important to, to be able to set aside a degree of time and capacity to support the stakeholder community and support the development of all of these relationships because it's ultimately it is then them that deliver these wider outcomes and outputs further down the line. 
Okay, so my next, thank you for that. My next question was going to be about what implications your model has for core and extension roles. And you've actually really covered that, although briefly. So for, for those who may not know the kind of core roles for music education hubs are um, whole class instrumental tuition for schools, groups and ensembles and performance opportunities for young people, which might be more as schools, progression routes, singing strategy, and then there are optional extension roles, which are CPD for school staff, instrument loan service, and large scale and high quality musical experiences. So you've kind of touched on some of those, but I wondered if there's anything else you want to say about the implications that your model has for those, or if you want to kind of pick on any particular core role and sort of talk about how you're doing that innovatively. I think it would probably be interesting to just talk a little bit about first access because I didn't cover that in my list earlier. But first access has been really interesting. So under the uh, under the music service model, the, the music service offered first access to schools in the county and the music service tutor would deliver a programme of work in the school over, usually over the course of an academic year. That input followed a fairly um, traditional kind of whole class instrumental approach. High quality stuff, quality assured. Um, fed the tuition, the tuition that was then offered by the music service in terms of progression. But originally, um, a lot of that work was offered by the music service for free. And whilst the number of schools that it was going into in the county was pretty high, there was, I think it would be fair to say, quite a lot of variability in how much schools valued it and felt that they owned it. And what we found towards the end of the music service period was that, in fact, when we introduced uh, a charge for some of that input, there was considerable drop-off, but um, schools were valuing the work some more. What we do now under our model is that we will provide subsidy to schools wanting to hire in associates to deliver first access in their schools, and that seems to work quite well. And we're roughly um, providing around 25 to 30% subsidy for that particular input to schools. But what we've also done in recognition of the way that things evolve and also schools changing needs and budgetary issues is we've introduced a number of different things into the palette of what's available including subsidy towards e-learning models such as Turanga, the trialling of some online tuition and input delivered through Skype and Skype-based lessons, supporting schools who increasingly actually seem to be wanting to try and deliver first access themselves uh, Wiltshire has a lot of small schools with you know, less than 120 pupils on register and the capacity issues within the schools are quite different. So we've found that we've made progress in engaging schools with first access by again increasing the palette uh, and the number of different things that are available to that. And every year we're trying to bring a new colour or shade, if you like, into that, into that offer so that it keeps moving. And some schools, I think, are really excited by the prospect of being able to rotate the kind of input that they have for that and to try different things different years and, and match those to things that, that their particular year group will respond to best. Okay. What's particularly exciting I think is when the school actually begins to see that it could in, in buying in that input from the associate that they may choose uh, and they could, you know it's up to them who they choose is that they can perhaps link some of that stuff to wide school agendas or to other areas of the curriculum quite effectively, be that inclusion or particular topics or things that they may be exploring in 
school or indeed um, the very important area of, of, of health and well-being is that music doesn't need to exist in a corner of the school or hidden away from everything else. It can actually be integral to a, a school's bloodstream, its development plan and to the wider things that it's trying to achieve. And so that basically a, a school can kind of think strategically about their music provision and how they can look at all areas of the curriculum nor areas of development of the young person really and just choose a practitioner based on that and vary those practitioners year on year even according to the school's needs. If it wants to and um, equally if it's very happy with the ongoing input of a particular provider that's fine the point is it's its choice and the work that cluster coordinators do as part of our school music plan work is is really to sort of to ask schools questions about how they want to do things how they're considering things whether they've thought of this or that whether they're aware that they could be doing it like this and to again to open up the palette of opportunities to them and enable them to make choices and indeed to to try different things okay so related to that john thompson hub leader for sandwell music education hub in the west midlands asks with increasing financial pressures on schools how do you balance the need for the highest quality provision with the pressure to increase numbers of engagement in core roles. Okay, I mean, I, th I think everybody's aware of the financial pressures that schools are under, and certainly in relation to um, things like the first access models that I was speaking about a minute ago, it's really important that there are a range of, of different options that schools can pick up to do those things, because the costs of doing those and the logistical implications of doing those vary. In terms of the quality, I think... I think this is a really tricky one um, because to a certain extent in our model we are not controlling all of the output that goes out of the door in the same way that a traditional music service model would have done. That doesn't mean that the quality isn't good. Uh, the counteraction to that is that we're encouraging schools and, and, and indeed parents and families and young people to apply more scrutiny to the quality of what they receive and to make choices that are based on that and make changes if they feel that they need to. And I think too often the quality argument has been used to close down any discussion about broadening out an offer. That doesn't mean in any way to say that I, I belittle the importance of quality. But I think that quality will look and feel and sound different to different schools, to different young people um, and in different settings. And what we really need to do is, is, is make sure that we offer a variety of choices and encourage a variety of choices to be available to schools so that they can choose what's going to be right for them at their particular moment in the course of developing. And I think we're supporting schools to make those judgments about quality through our clusters. So we have got these communities of teachers and music education providers who are supporting each other in a very sort of peer-to-peer -peer model so they can talk about quality in those clusters they can look at what's going on at a range of different schools and compare what's going on in their own school to what's going on down the road um, and we're, we're providing lots of CPD that helps with those quality judgments as well um, and I think the CPD thing is quite key to this because we tend here not to think about CPD as an extension role but rather as part of all of the other roles because we're, we're constantly trying to upskill our music education community to make it more sustainable. That's a really good point. That whole thing about both CPD and home conversations 
with teachers and music providers about quality is so important, isn't it? And because, as Nick said, there isn't one size fits all way to assess quality. And it's really important that we re remember that in music education. And that's a whole other podcast. But um, <laughs> it's, I think your cluster model really lends itself well to that, doesn't it? To having those discussions. I think so. And I think, you know, it's important that, again, as a community, you know, as a community takes ownership of its of how it wants things to be, the ceiling on those kind of things should constantly be being pushed up. And that probably happens, you know, on a fairly long trajectory over a period of time. But I, I think the day where somebody can say, you know, we are the we, we are the service provider for all of these people in all of these different settings and all of these different styles, we know best and uh, nobody else is going to be as good as us. It's just it's just not viable. And in my experience for work of working community and participatory arts and inclusion over the last 20 years, it's, it's quite simply not the case. But quality does look, feel and sound different in different settings. Um, but it should have some core parameters to that, which are about the ability to, to respond to an individual's needs, to operate safely and responsibly and other issues like that. But the language varies hugely between different stakeholder groups and show, so it should. Okay, and kind of linked to that, in terms of value for money and effectiveness, is this model working well compared with other hubs? And actually, that's a question that was put on Twitter, which was from Richard Jones, who's head of South Gloucestershire's hub. And he asked, why is your model better than a full service delivery model, which you kind of just touched on? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that our model is better than the full service model. You know, we, we have the model that we have because... The traditional full service model was no no longer available. Personally, I've for a long time I've been, you know, a believer in in in, in a mixed palette of, of different things that I've said before. Um, I think that one of the key things that makes it different is that we're able to concentrate on strategy, the very precise use of public money to do and achieve particular things, um, and to constantly be about moving the agenda forward rather than being overly consumed with day-to-day -day logistics of actually timetabling and getting tutors and people out to particular places. But that's the model that's working for us here in this county at the moment. It's not necessarily the model that would work perfectly everywhere else. We've certainly got a very small core team, as Nick already mentioned, and I think that that has lots of benefits. It enables us to be quite fleet of foot and to change course if we need to and be responsive in a way that perhaps a, a larger full music service model might not be able to. So I realise that time's going on, so I wondered if we could come on to communications now. And this is very much linked to community development, I think. How do you think the distinctive way in which you work affects the way in which you find out about and communicate with your stakeholders? Well, we've, we've learned a lot, I think, about the importance of communicating and about the importance of thinking about how things sound and read to different stakeholder groups. Um, it is incredibly important to what we do and it has been um, a huge contributor to the, the success, if you like, that we've had in engaging so many people in this new model and, and taking them with us on a journey from one place that was no longer going to be viable to something which seems more stable, more inclusive and broader than it's been before. And we, we, have, 
we communicate regularly with parents, with associates, with schools, but we communicate with them in different languages and through different mailing lists and things, if you like. And we involve them in the things that we do differently. We periodically, we identify the need to concentrate on a particular segment or of our audience or stakeholder group. Sophie's done some great work in bringing, in, in developing our relationships with secondary schools over the last couple of years. And I think she's going to say a few words about that. Yeah, I think it's been really useful to get advice on how to communicate differently with our different stakeholder groups so that we really start to think about what do they want to hear, what do they need to know. So we, we focused in the last year or so really about really developing our communications with secondary schools and that's been really successful. So we have separate mailing lists for secondary school teachers, we have systems for communicating individually with them and we've created resources to support them specifically in advocating for their subject. Um, and, and the results of that have been really great by taking that small um, quite small limited section of our audience and focusing just on them it's been really really useful I think it's also worth saying that because of our model and our, our stakeholder led approach when we communicate it's always a two-way flow of communication between all of our stakeholders we're not employing our associates so it's not a top-down communication model it's much more democratic than that we're encouraging them to communicate with us but perhaps more importantly encouraging them to communicate with each other as well so it, it does feel quite different I think to other places that I've worked. Another particular thing that we've developed over the last year or so has been a series of, of leaflets and guidance documents called Why Music some of which are pitched at parents and, and, and carers uh, and some of which are pitched at schools um, covering things to do with the, the value and importance of music how it how it can affect things at transition stuff about careers in the music industry things about choosing a, a tutor and all of those kinds of things and that for us is all part of the process of in, introducing people or supporting people with the concept that they have a choice about how they do things and what kind of inputs they want to put together for their for the children or for their pupils and in the, each case we've involved the stakeholder groups in the drafting and, and, and shaping of those those documents uh, and indeed in the distribution of them and interestingly um, you know um, I had a look at the web stats the other day and uh, the Y Music page on our website which um, for those visiting our site is in the bottom uh, right hand corner um, of our home page and um, it's the most fifth most popular page uh, on the whole site we have about one and a half thousand pages on the site in total including downloads um, but it's well up there in the top and indeed, we've been seeing significant uh, interest uh, across the country in those resources because there's relatively little in them which is specific to Wiltshire. And at the moment, we're trying to um, gauge from hubs across the country whether or not they're actually interested in them um, in coming in on that model with us. But again, these are things that we've learned about. If you'd asked me whether or not that would be on the list of things that we would do four years ago, I probably wouldn't have thought it. But what thought of it but we we followed the the chain of, of things we've listened to what people have said we've realized that in some instances doing something like that which is ostensibly a piece of communications work is actually the best way for us to help achieve something further down the line developmentally uh, and to produce outcomes and outputs from that
And I like the fact that this, none of this is guesswork and none of this is top down. It's all based on you responding to people's needs and understanding people's needs, isn't it? So that you give them exactly what they want in terms of content and resources. It, it is very much driven by that. I think I'd be lying if I said that we didn't do anything that was top down. There is definitely a, a part of our role, which is about, as I've said uh, previously, looking over the horizon, about nudging certain issues on and provoking responses to things if we don't think that people are recognising the implications of them as well as they might. So, you know, uh, yes, we are listening and we are constantly being shaped by what our stakeholders say and feel and, um, and express to us. But we are also taking an overview because we are the subject specialist organisation for, for wheelchair. And that's part of our responsibility. And quite rightly, people have a right to expect that we will take some leadership. That's great. Thank you. So I was going to ask you next what sort of evidence you have that your approach to communications is working, but you've, you've kind of touched on that. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that in terms of perhaps any feedback from people that you've heard, anecdotal evidence that it's working? Well, I'm certainly really um, pleased and proud of the, the number of requests we get from all over the country to use our Y Music resources. Particularly proud to say that we've even recently um, had a request to have them translated into Welsh so that they can be used in Welsh schools. Fantastic. And you know, we, we didn't set out to create Y Music documents that would work all over the country. They were designed for Wiltshire, but it's great that they are being used further afield and that those messages are useful to people. I think overall, what was what what one of the one of the clearest measures really of how that's worked is that over time is that we've gone, I think, from a situation in which initially when we started doing our hub this way, a number of people were quite surprised that they were being asked, you know, what they thought and how they might want to engage with it and had a place to deal with that, and people were often a little slow or reticent to respond to offers and gestures that we made. Now it's quite different. I think when we put stuff out about commissions or particular funds and things like that, people are going and looking at them and deciding whether or not it's appropriate for them because they recognise that, that it's being done to help them and the, and the work that they're doing. Uh, and we get all sorts of anecdotal feedback on evaluation forms about how useful and engaging and practically useful a piece of CPD may have been or about um, how people really value having the values of music distilled for them in a way that they can use in their work. Um, we get great feedback about um, some of our associate, associates and organisations, you know, from parents or, or young people who are really, have been really thrilled by that experience. And we get you know, we get useful feedback about how we might improve our services and how we communicate and how we present things as well. And that's all part of an ongoing evolution. I think one of the most important things that, that I've learned from this process is that, you know, this isn't about making two or three steps to modernise how we present Wiltshire music, sorry, music for, for children and young people in Wiltshire. It's about recognising that we are on a kind of a conveyor belt of ongoing change in which everything around us is changing all the time and there is a constant need to reflect and modernise and think ahead and invest in the ideas that will be the ideas of the future. Some of them will fall by the wayside but to assume that we've done four things as an example and now we don't need to change anything else would be the greatest mistake we could possibly make and Butcher Music Connect should look and feel different in another four years 
um, to what it does now, and it certainly is very different to what it was four years ago. I'd love to ask you more about how you went from a sort of stage where there wasn't much community development, there wasn't much two-way communication and input from stakeholders to where you are now you know maybe if you had a tip for other hubs around that who were sort of feeling oh we're not getting much engagement for school from schools or from students or etc is there something that you one particular kind of piece of advice that you I'd say be brave be persistent reflect try again and don't forget to ask them why they don't engage with it if they don't engage with it Brilliant. Okay. I might come back to that in a bit because I wanted to ask you for some piece of practical advice, but it seemed just important to, to sort of mention that here. So I'm going to go on to something kind of completely different and a bit of a curveball. Um, it was a question from Twitter, which is from Russ Tunney, who's a theatre director and writer. And he asked, which contemporary songwriter and song defines this era and should be used in educational settings? Well, we have to say, first of all, that we know Russ quite well, and Russ um, uh -huh. is also the director of one of our associate organisations, but this isn't the setup. I think, for me, um, my contemporary is different to a lot of other people's contemporary, but thinking about things that have been happening recently, I, I identified two particular albums, which for me were, were kind of really formative music, musical experiences. One was an album called The Colour of Spring by Talk Talk, which was masterminded by the genius of a uh, the late Mark Hollis, who, who died a couple of months ago, and also an album by Kate Bush called The Hounds of Love. And to me, they were both really brave, risk-taking, genre-changing albums that broke the mould and changed certainly my expectations of what, uh, what music could be and sound like and feel like, and opened my mind, if you like, to, to new shades and, and palettes of musicality. And Certainly, if I were in advising any young musicians who are creating their own music, whether that's digitally or using in, you know, real instruments or combinations of the two, that, you know, finding your style, experimenting, working towards your style, your character, your musical character, stepping out of your comfort zones is just really, really important. And in fact, I find that that comes up a lot in conversations about people's educational processes and indeed schools' attitudes to music. But I would definitely say, you know, take those opportunities to, to go outside your comfort zone and see where it takes you. It's amazing. That's a brilliant answer, Nick. Oh, so, sorry, Sophie. Did Shall you... I have a go, Anita? Yeah, that would be brilliant. I found this really difficult to answer. So thanks, Russ, for a very difficult question. Uh, I think the reason I found it hard is that a lot of the music that I like at the moment is actually written by songwriting teams rather than by necessarily an individual artist or songwriter and I think there is there has been a move towards this in recent years where record labels and production companies that have got their kind of go-to writing teams and the people in those teams are not necessarily household names but they're people who've worked with multiple artists and sold billions of records um, and a quick google to to kind of look at some of your favorite songs will 
turn up some of these names like John Shanks, Steve Robson, Elliot Kennedy, who are kind of behind the scenes songwriters. And there's lots of bad things about that because I think lots of people make tiny tweaks to other people's songs and then expect a writing credit, which is um, not necessarily a good practice. But I think there's also a lot going for collaborative songwriting. So rather than picking any one thing, I'm, I'm going to say that I think it's uh, interesting for education settings to really look at children writing songs together and taking that collaborative approach rather than perhaps sitting in their bedrooms and writing music on their own oh brilliant i love your answers um, and any answer that um, includes kate bush is good for me anyway um, <laughs> so just to wrap up finally can you give us either three practical pieces of advice for listeners or perhaps three calls to action for others working in music education who are listening things that perhaps you'd like to see happen in music education one of mine is that I, I would really like non-specialist primary school teachers to be more confident with delivering music. Um, it would be wonderful if we lived in a world where all primary school music was delivered by specialists, but, but we're not. We're not in that world. And actually, we know that non-specialist primary teachers can deliver excellent music if they're brave enough and if they ask for help and support. I would say... Be brave, look ahead, make space for innovation, expect to be changing and evolving as you go along, and make sure you take people with you. And can I throw in the last one then? My one is, I would really like to see music mentioned in Ofsted reports. I think it would make a huge difference to how music is delivered in this country. At the moment, I think it's really sad that some of the fantastic music going on in our schools isn't recognised in Ofsted reports. And if it was, I think heads would be more interested in it. So um, I'd like to make a plea to Ofsted to mention music a bit more. That's fantastic. Fantastic thing to end on. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Nick and Sophie. It's been really great to chat to you. I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to me today. Thanks, Anita. Thank you. And if you want to read more about Wiltshire Music Connect, I'll share the link to their website, their resources, and they've got quite a few case studies of hands or shadows in the show notes. Thank you for listening and have a great rest of the week. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. And make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.